0: It takes a lot of hard work and guts to make it in Detroit, and no one knows that better than Carhartt. Since 1889, Carhartt's been making the toughest, most trusted gear for anyone who outworks them, because from field to farm and all sites in between, Carhartt's got your back for whatever lies ahead.
1: Hey, this is Jackson Job. The Road to Detroit podcast starts right now. Here's your host, Dan Hasty.
2: aren't always what they seem player development is a fluid process sometimes you think you could be getting one type of player and as they mature physically as they mature mentally things change we always need to be open-minded that this is a never-ending process player development is not linear It doesn't follow the same path. It doesn't always take the same route. It's the reason that a top five prospect can get to the major leagues and struggle, while a player that wasn't even ranked becomes an everyday player. No two paths to the major leagues are exactly the same. Case in point, Jackson Job. Two years ago, Jackson Job was convinced if he was going to be a professional baseball player, he was going to make it as a shortstop. He was but a mere late inning reliever during his first year at the high school level. But then something happened. He discovered analytics. It was Jackson Job who realized he had a special talent. The boom of analytics is not just happening at the professional level, it's trickling its way down to college and even to high school. Meanwhile, when we think about other players in the Tigers minor league system, one of the things that has started to show itself is that this process is a fluid process. Sometimes a prospect will realize that they are not exactly the player that they thought they were.
3: But they are
0: who we thought they were.
2: (laughs) No, no, no. You're not who you think you are. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the process of player development. The explosion of analytics through the game of baseball has changed our perception and has shown players that they may be more talented in areas they never realized. Jackson Job is living proof of that. And with that, welcome to the Road to Detroit podcast, presented by Carhartt. My name is Dan Hasty. Our producer is Nate Wangler. Jackson Job, the number three overall pick in the MLB draft is scheduled to join us in just a couple of moments. And there's a couple things he's going to talk about that really hit home with a lot of people who were following the Tigers on draft day. Jackson Job spoke on the inherent risk of high school right-handers being drafted high. You're not going to want to miss that. And I also think you're going to be floored when you find out the number of total innings Jackson Job has pitched between the high school and summer ball levels. But we'll let Jackson tell you the story. By the way, cool side note about Jackson Job, He actually had roomed going on the high school perfect game circuit with Isaac Pacheco, who was the second-round pick of the Tigers in this year's draft. So they actually already came in having known each other. I'm pretty sure Isaac Pacheco was in the room as we talked to Jackson Job on this edition of the Road to Detroit podcast presented by Carhartt. We'll also talk to Dr. Georgia Giblin, the director of performance science. She is so heavily rooted in analytics and in so many other departments that she has the ability to look at data with a player or with a coach and show them that they may be not exactly what they thought they were. Maybe they're a different type of player. Maybe they're better than they thought. Maybe some of the adjustments that they have to make are adjustments they never realized. Sometimes your skill set can get you through low class A or high class A, but if you want to make it to the major leagues, for some players, eventually what you have might not be enough, and you're going to have to work at it. One of the few people who have the ability to see those issues before they happen is Dr. Georgia Giblin. She will join us coming up here on this edition of The Road to Detroit. So in this edition of the RTD, it's Jackson Job and Dr. Georgia Giblin. In the meantime, here on the RTD, let's get to the news. Just a couple of things to pass along. Bo Brisky, who was the ace of the West Michigan Whitecaps rotation, got a promotion. He's on his way up to double-A Erie. Bo Brisky was 6-3. and three. He led the high-A Central with six victories. He also had 76 strikeouts. In over 62 innings, a native of Chandler, Arizona, really had a breakout season. The 23 year old had the lowest walks plus hits per inning of any white cap. At just 1.02. He threw a complete game, seven inning shutout in one of his last starts as a white cap. So, congratulations to Bo Brisky. Moving along this week, it's the MLB trade deadline. We'll see what the Tigers do. The Tigers have some options available to them, some huge opportunities to continue to stockpile talent in the minor league system. Will the Tigers pull the trigger on a move to improve that farm system? Boy, one of the last chances for the Tigers to really get another valuable piece or two before they hit the gas pedal maybe even as soon as next season but if the tigers make any deals we'll be all over it we'll be covering that in the next edition of the road to detroit but for now we wait and we'll see if the tigers make any moves at this year's trade deadline and now a recap of the week it was here's the on ramp the florida complex league tigers have been in action still kind of learning their way around some of the newest players in the system getting their first taste of professional baseball. One of those players is Roberto Campos, and he's off to a slower start. He's hitting a little over 230, but he's starting to pick it up. A six-game hit streak, a pair of doubles, a home run, three runs batted in. As for Loe Lakeland, the Flying Tigers split a six-game set against Dunedin. They put up their second-most runs in any game this season as they beat Dunedin by a score of 17-6. Former second-round pick Nick Quintana is starting to warm up at the plate. Three for five, three RBIs, a solo homer. Eliezer Alfonso, who started the season in West Michigan, has gone down to low A and has seemingly found his power stroke. A two-run home run already with four home runs in Lakeland after having gone homerless during his bulk of the season having played in West Michigan. Meanwhile, the first baseman, Jake Holton, three for three, a double, three RBIs in that game. Every Lakeland hitter notched at least one hit, and all but one got at least one RBI. Also, congratulations to Colt Keith, who was on the episode of the RTD last week. If you want to go back and hear a phenomenal conversation with a young man who speaks much, much farther along than a 19-year-old, Colt Keith joined us last episode. He started the series strong, going 3-for-6 with a home run and four runs batted in. That home run, his first professional home run, off to high A, West Michigan. The Whitecaps split a six-game series with the Lansing Lugnuts. Whitecaps have been kind of treading water over the last couple of months, but one of the reasons they've been able to stay competitive is, is a guy like Eric De La Rosa. He continues to make a case for a spot among the Tigers' top 30 prospects. He finished the week with the longest hitting streak of any Cap this season at 12 games while driving in six runs, two doubles, two triples, a pair of stolen bases. He has started to really take off. An excellent job by the Whitecaps coaching staff to get him to a place where he is becoming A headliner. It's amazing. You think about the story of Eric De La Rosa. He went to San Jose State to try and play college baseball, and he got cut. Then he ended up at community college. Grossmont Junior College became a seventh-round pick of the Tigers. Very toolsy outfielder. The question was always going to be, could he put it together? Well, you tell me. His batting average is nearly 300. His on-base percentage is over 380. He leads West Michigan in steals with 16. He's got 19 extra base hits in 47 games with 23 runs batted in. He also plays a really good outfield at any of the three spots. You know, earlier this season, when it came to Dylan Dingler, we bang the table, we got him into the top 100. Okay, maybe it wasn't us, but somebody got him into the top 100. Full well, now I think the next player might be Eric De La Rosa. I think we need to bang the table for EDLR. Let's get him into the top 30. He has been phenomenal here in 2021. Meanwhile, Parker Meadows hit safely in five out of six with three RBIs, including a two-run homer, helped West Michigan split the series, and Adam Wolf, for the second time since joining West Michigan – he had a no hitter going through six innings. Last Sunday, a career high nine strikeouts for the lefty from Louisville, who, by the way, taught himself his best pitch on YouTube. He wanted to learn how to throw a cutter, and he YouTubed Mariano Rivera's cut fastball. You know, the one that broke all those bats for a couple of decades? Well, Adam Wolf was breaking a bunch of bats and breaking a lot of hearts as they beat the Lansing Lugnuts by a score of three to nothing on Sunday. Let's go to Double A Erie. The Seawolves split a six-game set on the road against the Binghamton Rumble Ponies. Spencer Torkelson drove in eight runs on five hits. He had three doubles and two home runs. He has continued to hit for power ever since going to Double A. As for Riley Green, started slow last week, but ended up hitting safely in four out of six games, had a pair of doubles, a triple, and Dylan Dingler hit his first grand slam with the Seawolves. That came back on July the 24th.
0: And the pitch from Gordon is belted high in the air in a deep left field. Away back, Beatty. Track, wall, grand slam for Erie. Dylan Dingler brings them all home.
2: That's his second grand slam this year. He had one with West Michigan as well. Ryan Kreidler hits safely in five out of six. Three doubles, a pair of homers. He's got 11 this year. He's only behind Spencer Torkelson, who has 14 total, and Josh Lester with 13 that he's hit with the Seawolves. Joey Wentz, he's another top-10 Tigers prospect. We haven't had a chance to talk about him too much. We haven't been reading too closely into his numbers. He's been battling back from Tommy John surgery. Well, he went four innings of one-hit shutout baseball and struck out six. So finally, it looks like Joey Wentz might be starting to get comfortable after missing all that time needing Tommy John surgery. Off to A Toledo, the Mudhens won five out of six against the Indianapolis Indians. Cody Clemens was outstanding. The Tigers' number 13 prospect, he drove in five, a pair of doubles and three home runs, one of them with an epic bat flip with two of those homers coming on the same day. That was July 22nd. He finished 3 for 4 with 3 runs scored in a 7 to 2 Mud Hens victory. There's a look at the on-ramp. This is the only place that you'll find out how Jackson Job discovered his own talent and gives you a behind the scenes look at how everything came together. That's right here on the road to Detroit if you haven't already done so. Make sure you subscribe. Our conversation with the number three overall pick in the 2021 MLB draft, Jackson Job, starts right now. The Road to Detroit podcast rolls on. Well, ever since his name was said with the number three overall pick in the MLB draft, this is a moment that we, and I know you have been waiting for. Jackson Job, the high school pitcher of the year, according to Baseball America, joins us here on the RTD. Jackson, thank you very much for taking some time with us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Congratulations.
2: What a year for you. I mean, have these last two weeks been just the craziest two weeks of your life?
1: They really have. It's been a, it's been a mix of a lot of emotions, a lot of stress, a lot of, a lot of excitement, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of unknowns. So I'm, uh, I'm just happy to be here and looking forward to, uh, to what's in store in the future.
2: So I looked at your high school numbers and I had to start doing math, which is something I don't enjoy doing. But if you pitch 51 and two thirds innings in a season, that means you have retired exactly 155 batters. Then I realized you struck out 122 of them. So
1: I guess you could say it was a good year. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I had a good year and uh, we ended up winning state championship too. So I made it even better. (laughs)
2: that's outstanding i mean give us an idea of how busy
1: you've been like what's been normal for you the last week or two? Oh, so the last week i we uh me and isaac flew in on monday
2: you're talking about um, isaac pacheco the tiger second round pick
1: yes sir yeah he's my roommate so we both got here monday and then uh you know we've been here for what's us say tuesday for yeah since monday so um it's been a it's been a lot but we finally signed the signed the papers on um Friday and it made it official and then started practice on Saturday but um you know it's all about just trying to get acclimated to professional baseball and and get a taste of of what that's like before the spring but um but so far I'm I'm loving it I'm getting to hang out with all the guys getting to to learn a lot from the from the coaching staff um and all the guys they have here so I'm um, uh, it's been, it's been awesome. I'm, I'm loving it right now.
2: So I want to get back to the fact that you're rooming with Isaac Pacheco. And from what I understand, this is not the first time that you have roomed <laughs> with Isaac Pacheco. We'll come back to that. But for right now, what I'd like to do is I wanted to play you a clip of Scott Plyce, who I know you've gotten to know well over the last couple of weeks. Right. We had him on the show last week and we asked him about where the Tigers had you on their draft board. Are you ready to hear this? Sure, let's do it. Is it fair to say that Jackson Job was the number one player on your board
0: on draft night? Oh, he was definitely the number one guy on our board that night. I mean, it's a, like I said, it goes a lot of work goes into it and the guy that gets on top of that is talked about obviously uh, a lot. And uh he worked his way in there and and uh no, I shouldn't say worked his way. And he, he he sat on top. And uh we talked about everybody. A good firm debate and back and forth. Um, on all the players just to make sure that, you know, that, that we're all, we're getting the right player. You know, those conversations happened and we beat up a lot of guys talking about them because there was some, there was some, obviously, you know, we had a great pick and three and there's talented kids there. So we talked about quite a few of them and uh, we came up with the, uh, the idea that Jackson was the best.
2: How do you feel when you hear that? Number one on a team's draft board, a major league team's draft board.
1: I just wish I would have known that, you know, two weeks ago. It would have taken a lot of stress away from me, honestly. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's awesome. I, um, it, it still really hasn't all hit me yet I'm, that I'm here, that I'm playing for the tires. I'm a professional baseball player. It's, it's a dream come true. So it's, uh, it's, it, it's pretty special. Do you ever
2: wonder what those conversations are like in those draft rooms? I mean, like, I think one of the things we're always trying to figure out is is about ourselves or how we're perceived or what things we do well or what things we need to work on. And, of course, you're going to work with a lot of guys over the next couple of years who will help refine your game and to teach you those points. But, I mean, how much do you wonder about, if they're willing to take me at number three, what in the world were they talking about for all <laughs> this time to make me that pick?
1: Uh, I mean, yeah, I definitely, you know, it's definitely run through my mind, you know, trying to figure out what they what they think about me. At the end of the day, I try to just, you know, not think about too much of the outside stuff and kind of just control what I can control. And right now that's being in Lakeland, you know, working out and, and trying to get in best shape as I can to get ready for the spring. And then we'll see where, where that takes us.
2: Talk to me about your slider. We had Brian Sikowski from Perfect Game. And he said, and I quote, Jackson Job slider moves through dimensions. Is that true? Does it actually do that?
1: Uh, I don't know. I don't think they have anything to to measure that right now in this day and age. So maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. But, um, I mean, I, I, I didn't really know I had a good slider until really my junior year. That's when they brought out all the spin rate and everything. And when I first heard it, I had no idea what it meant. Yeah, it's been it's a nice, nice tool to have. I was blessed with with that ability to throw that pitch. So I'm going to try to keep refining it and and make it as best as possible with the help of the guys in the, the Tigers organization.
2: Take me back to high school in Oklahoma because you were a shortstop and probably would have gotten drafted, perhaps very highly as one. What were you like as a pitcher early in your high school career before you realized the numbers on that slider and the rest of the stuff that you had?
1: When I got into high school, like you said, I was more of a shortstop and then um, kind of had pitching in my back pocket. I'd always had a, a pretty decent arm growing up. So um, a lot of times I'd just get thrown in there for the last inning or the last two innings and get up there and just be a guy that, that has a good arm, throws pretty hard, and um, and get a few outs towards the end of the game. So, yeah, that was kind of my role, play shortstop majority of the time, come in and throw an inning or two when they need me. I wouldn't really – Ever the main guy that they wanted me on the mound in game one of of, of a big series type of thing. So, um, yeah, it's pretty funny how that, how that all worked out. It also helps me because I don't have very much mileage on my arm, but with that, I don't have as much experience. So, um, that's kind of the one thing I'm trying to do right now, soak up as much information as I can and try to apply that for, you know, when I need it what made things
2: click on the mound towards the end as opposed to the beginning? Was it simply having seen the numbers on some of your pitches, some of the data?
1: Uh, I think it honestly was just growing up physically. As a a kid, as as a freshman and a sophomore, I was pretty below average as far as physical development goes. So I was a little behind everybody. Junior year, things started to creep up and I started to gain a lot of weight. I started to get a better feel for my body and that transferred over to my mechanics, which helped my velocity, which then helped my you know slider and everything. So um, I think it was just a matter of time before um, everything kind of clicked, and I'm glad it, it happened when it did.
2: Since we didn't see you on camera, describe your draft night experience.
1: <laughs> oh, man. So the draft started at – I want to say the first pick was at 6.07. And um, so I had – um, I didn't have a big draft party. I had um, probably 15 people over total. I had some some family, I had some friends, and um, it, it was different than than last year's draft. Apparently, because you know I was supposed to have an idea a day before of kind of who was going to take me, whatever. Um, that ended up not happening. Um, so probably got four hours of sleep the night before. Showed up, sat down at at six, turned on the draft. And you know, they, I had heard different scenarios of if the Pirates took this person, then Detroit's taking this person at three. So I saw Henry Davis go at one. And I was like, man, like I don't know if, if that was you know supposed to happen. You know, they, everyone was saying the Pirates were going to do something crazy, and and um. So I mean, I didn't really know what to expect, and then they called my name at three, and, and I, I couldn't even believe it. I was I was so excited. Everybody went crazy. So it was awesome
2: so is it fair to say that you didn't expect Detroit to take you given what the situation was when that number
1: three pick came around I wouldn't necessarily say that I mean I I knew I knew they liked me and and they um they came into my house and and they were awesome made me feel super comfortable and I'd like to think I, I did the same to them but um I mean you hear so much about the high school pitcher, and all the risk that comes with it, so that was really the only knock on me, I feel like so I mean, yeah, that was kind of the only thing i was I was worried about because I know it's a it's a risk for to take me at at that high in the draft, but um you know, I think that that I'll be all right, and I'll just continue to work hard and you know hopefully be in, in Detroit soon be winning some baseball games it sounds like you've done some homework on this. So you have a pretty good idea as
2: to what would make teams gun shy about using such a high pick on a high school right-handed pitcher. But what things can you control that no matter who you are, no matter what your profile looks like,
1: what makes that irrelevant? Uh, I think work ethic, 100% the work you put it in the off season and, you know, you end up getting results in the spring that come from that. So I worked my my tail off, went and, went and did all right in the high school season, and I think that's when people kind of realized we can look past this whole high school right-handed pitcher demographic and take this guy. So yeah, I'm I'm thankful and I'm I'm excited, and um, we'll kind of see where it all goes.
2: I remember hearing from a baseball coach who was in the SEC who was very close friends with the person or people who had recruited you to play college ball at old miss. And they had said to a man, best high school pitcher I've ever seen. So (laughs) the fact that at least we've got that going for us, you mentioned on that call that you did with Detroit media, that you had your contract terms worked out before the day that you signed, which was just a couple of days ago. So
1: how, and when did that come together? Oh, I think it was, draft day or maybe the day after but yeah they had they had a verbal agreement on on what the money was going to be so i mean yeah it, it worked out it was uh, a good situation they were awesome about it didn't try to didn't try to pull anything on me so um it all it all went really well
2: have the tigers explained their plans for you this season
1: yeah that's the kind of the only thing people ask and then i say you know I i don't really know at the moment but they um they have a five, six week plan for me right now to get me built up to throw off the mound. So um they really just said to communicate, let them know how my arm feels. So I'm just trying to take it day by day and if I can pitch at the end of the season then then great. No, if not, then I'll just get ready to, to throw in um uh, in October, I think is when they have instructional leagues. So I'm excited. I definitely wanna be on the mound and, and compete. It's been it's been a while, so We'll just kind of see but I don't want to rush into anything this early.
2: So there is a chance that we see you on the mound, whether it be somewhere in the FCL or maybe in low A or something like that at some point this season. Is that still on the table?
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a chance. But at the same time, you know, like I said, I don't want to rush into anything too early and, and do something not smart. So we'll kind of just see how it goes, go from there. But yeah, the best case scenario, I'd be, I'd be doing that. So, you know,
2: we'll see. I love that we're talking to you from your room in Lakeland, Florida, where Isaac Pacheco is your roommate. I know he's not too (laughs) far away from us right now. So, Isaac, good morning. Uh, You talked about having (laughs) Isaac as someone who understood what you were going through because it was sort of happening to the both of you simultaneously. How much of an advantage was that? Because you guys knew each other before you got to the Tigers.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a was an advantage, but it was definitely, you know, kind of something to where it made me feel more comfortable having, being able to talk to him about certain things, whether a team said something or did something and, and he can tell me like, oh yeah, like they did the same thing. Like, like you're all good type of thing. So I don't know, there's a lot that happens in the year leading up to the draft. You know, I had probably 30 zoom meetings in the fall And then, um, you know, have a bunch of people come to your games in the spring and people want to talk to you here and and there. And there's different things you can do and things you're advised not to do. So um, there's just a lot going on. And obviously you're you're super young and it's your first experience with all that. So you don't really know how to handle everything. So, yeah, I mean, he was awesome to have. I mean, we had the same same agent. So we were both on the same page with everything.
2: The simple mileage, because you mentioned mileage or the lack of mileage on your arm. How many innings total would you say
1: you threw in high school? Um, Are we including like summer ball as well? Sure. Okay. Um, Somewhere in the ballpark of, we'll go 115, 120, or somewhere around there. (laughs) Talk about leaving a good impression. Do you wish you could still play shortstop? Oh yeah, like I said something to um the infield guy guy here, like kind of messing around, like hey y'all, I'll see you in the infield here in a second. He was just like, nope. And I was like, all right, well I tried. It's <laughs> all, all he can do. <laughs> you know, it's funny
2: uh, you mentioned you know just throwing a hundred and fifteen ish innings between high school and summer ball. And you had a lot of scouts watching you pitch. What did you learn about managing the nerves when scouts started showing up at your games? Because look, by this time next year, you could be pitching in front of nine thousand fans in West Michigan, and then fast forward a couple of years, maybe forty thousand fans in Detroit. How did you deal with that?
1: Yeah, I think the the biggest thing is to not. Yeah, you know, I'll come back to that in a second, but to get really locked in in your warm up and in your your pre song routine. That way, you don't get lost in anything during or right before you go out, and you know, at the end of the day, like I said earlier, you're, you can uh, you just got to try to control what you can control. And and um, when I'm when I'm getting ready to throw, and I'm I'm getting on the mound, all I'm really thinking about is is getting the the hitter out. So all the outside noise, all that kind of takes care of itself the second the, the batter steps in the box. So um, I think I've done a pretty good job of it. But I mean, in the in the back of your mind, you always know that. there's guys there so it's definitely something you have to be aware of not getting too lost in it
2: jackson Job has been gracious enough to join us here on the rtd before we go what are you most looking forward to the rest of this season you've got some work ahead of you and maybe some games at some point but what are you excited about
1: i think just being around the the guys here you know all the all the players the coaches have been have been awesome i mean everybody talks about how amazing the the uh you know player development staff is and everything and how much they know and oh they're they're great people too so they're they're awesome to be around and it makes it makes it a lot easier because you hear a lot about the minor leagues and how hard it is and you know you're at the field all day but when I'm when I'm there with everybody it's just it's a lot of fun so um so I enjoy it It doesn't feel like I have a job it just feels like I'm doing what I love with people that love the game. Yeah, we're pretty lucky
2: in that way. We get to go play baseball for a living, in your case, and, of course, a lot of your teammates. And we're so excited for you. And we're so excited, of course, for Isaac as well, who we are going to get at some point on this podcast, (laughs) at some point before the end of the season. But, Jackson, today is about you. Congratulations on being that number three overall pick. It's so exciting for you, for your family, for the Tigers. And thanks so much for giving us a few minutes here on the Road to Detroit podcast. Best of luck. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's now time for Best in Class. Of all the players in the Tigers minor league system, this one made the most noise.
3: Cora has De La Rosa in a 1-2 count. Bases are loaded with one out. Here's the pitch. Ripped right field. It is down the right field line. Kerr scores. Proctor scores. Workman scores. De La Rosa into third. It's a 3 Triple. Five to two white caps here on the bottom of the six.
2: That's right. We talked about him earlier in the show. Eric De La Rosa has had a phenomenal 2021 season. He has been red hot as of late. Last week against the Lansing Lugnuts, 12 for 25, no big deal. Two doubles, two triples, six runs batted in. He stole three bases had a 12-game hitting streak at one point. This is a young man in Eric De La Rosa who has learned to appreciate the game on a different level than many others. All Eric De La Rosa wanted to do was play college baseball. And like with so many raw, toolsy outfielders, it didn't happen overnight. As a matter of fact, it took a while. In 2019, Eric De La Rosa hit just 148 playing at Connecticut. This season, combined between more advanced levels, low A Lakeland and high A West Michigan, he has seemingly gotten better as the season has gone on and as the assignment has gotten increasingly difficult. If you add the numbers together, De La Rosa nearly hitting 300 with an on base percentage over 380, 23 stolen bases in 63 games. I love stories like this. Somebody who really struggled, figured it out, took the time, put the energy in, put the work in, and figured it out. Eric De La Rosa should be a top 30 Detroit Tigers prospect at some point in the near future. He's this week's best in class. And now it's time for the Dylan Rosa Award. Who will accept this Rosa? The only person who knows is Nate Wangler, our producer. You know what I appreciate
3: about this segment of Best in Class, Dan? Because you get to do the Dylan Rosa award winner? That's number one. Number two is the fact that both of these guys aren't in the top 30 prospect ranks, but probably should be considered for a spot in the top 30. Accepting the Rosa this week is Ryan Kreidler, the former fourth rounder in 2019 out of UCLA for the Tigers. He went 9-for-25 this week against Binghamton. Three doubles, a pair of home runs, and he's starting to hit a lot better at the double-A level playing over at third base. So far this year, a .247 batting average, which is average, but I think the hopeful sign is that he's hitting more home runs. He plays over in the hot corner, and who knows, maybe you bump Spencer Torkelson over to first base. I don't know where he fits into the long-term plan of the Tigers, but Ryan Kreidler is hitting better, and I think he's deserving of this week's ROSA.
2: Congratulations, Ryan Kreidler. And you know, I think what we forget about Ryan Kreidler is the fact that he had played as far as Connecticut back in 2019. So the fact that he started this season in Double A Erie, that says a lot. That's a monumental jump up the player development ladder. If you're playing short-season rookie ball, that means you jumped over not one level, which is unusual, but two full levels going from rookie ball to double-A, and he has fit in more than okay. He's all of a sudden hitting for power. He's always had a good glove. Ryan Kreidler getting the Rosa Award from Nate Wangler this week. Do you mail that to him, or do you send that digitally?
3: Uh, deliver it in person.
2: Wow. Well, <laughs> You better get moving. <laughs> The Road to Detroit podcast continues. There are few people who understand as much about each individual player in the Tigers system as my next guest. A lot to learn about her effect on the minor leaguers. I'm so happy she's able to join us. Dr. Georgia Giblin, the Director of Performance Science for the Detroit Tigers. Georgia, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks, Dan. Now, Dr. Giblin, did I read somewhere that you'll typically have three hours of reports to do on players after games. Is that true?
4: <laughs> I don't know where you read that. Um, <laughs> not necessarily, no. I mean, there's, there's certainly a huge component to my job of uh, reporting, um, crunching numbers and trying to understand what's been happening and uh, relay that to the coaches and the player development staff, but uh, not necessarily after every game.
2: I was going to say, please tell me you like coffee. Uh, so explain the correlation between your role and analytics, because the Tigers have been well-known to have beefed up their analytics department, but I don't know exactly what side you're on or if you're just on every side. How would you explain it?
4: Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting one, actually. So I technically, my position sits within analytics, However, I kind of see myself as a department that's here to assist everybody. So I work very closely, obviously, with player development, with strength and conditioning, with the medical department, and with analytics. And I kind of view myself as a little bit of a resource. So if some of those departments have questions or things that I can help answer, I can help each one of them. Um, So, but, you know, with regards to the analytics, I guess... A lot of my job is, is numbers, probably slightly different numbers to what the analytics department deals with, but I do work very closely with them.
2: When it comes to, say, because I want to get into the minor leaguers, the prospects, the players from every level on down, but I'm also curious about the draft picks. How much work goes into this particular draft class, the 2021 draft class, before they were selected? How much work goes into it for you?
4: It varies a little bit. So this year, for the first time, Major League Baseball had a combine. So that was the event that was held in Raleigh prior to the draft. And, you know, similar to an NBA combine or a NFL combine, the players that chose to go were run through a series of performance tests. So things like a 30-yard sprint, um, some general body movement um, tests, you know, height, weight, all that kind of stuff, um, alongside some games, obviously, as well. Uh, So I actually went out to that and was able to see some of the draft players. Obviously, not everyone chose to go. Um, So that for me was really interesting. And and it's kind of a first step for Major League Baseball into that, that combine space. So post that draft, there was a lot of number crunching for me, um, and a lot of, of reporting to try and you know, figure out which tests were conducted that provide, you know, valuable information for us in terms of what we're looking for in players. So that was probably one um, aspect of it. The second aspect is obviously sometimes we hold workouts for the players or we see them or scouts bring back video, things like that. So on that side of things, I typically spend a little bit of time breaking down the players and just, you know, if they're on site or we've had access to some testing with them, you know, I can capture certain metrics that we're interested in, break that down and then present that back to, to the scouts and the, and the front office. Um, if it's just video, you know, maybe it's breaking that down and presenting that back as well. So it just kind of depends on who we're seeing and whether they're here, whether they're elsewhere. But there is a, a little bit of work that, that does certainly go into pre-draft.
2: The first MLB draft combine, how helpful was that for you?
4: It was helpful. It was very interesting, actually. So I think they made a great start. There's certainly some um, some really good data and information that we were able to collect that we probably wouldn't have had before. Um, so I think the scouts, you know, they see them play a lot and we have access to a lot of that game data. But some of the more specific... Um, performance testing, we don't necessarily ever get to do or get the opportunity to see. So that was, you know, really helpful for us. And I think that information becomes really important the further you get down the draft, right? And you're looking for really talented athletic players.
2: Um, That information becomes key. What is the difference between the numbers you're able to collect at a place, say, like the combine versus maybe a private workout?
4: So at the Combine, everything was set by MLB. So we only had access to the tests that they ran. Um, so we basically, when I was there, were just observers. So it didn't have any, anything to do with collecting any of the data. Um, and then post Combine, they packaged it all up and, and sent through to us. So we were kind of at the mercy as to what tests they could run within the space and the, the confines that they have. Obviously, if a player was to come to us, we have a little bit more freedom in what we can do. So, if they're at our facility, um, obviously, we have player development coaches here that can assist if we want to take BP, things like that. And then we have our technology here as well um, that we use. You know, these guys will get exposed to it post-draft as we start to, to work through their plans, but we can also use some of that technology pre-draft to get an idea about, you know, what their swing looks like, how do they move when they're swinging versus, you know, just general athletic movements, things like that. So I think when they're here, we have a lot more control over what we can do and we can use our facilities and our technology, I think, to a, a better level.
2: I know you've been on the job for about 2 years, but most of which we've played within this pandemic. So, how's mm-hmm. that affected especially because a lot of what you do is revolved around minor league baseball? So, when you don't have that, how do you navigate a situation that none of us have ever navigated before?
4: <laughs> yeah, it's certainly challenging and and thinking back now to last year's draft class, obviously it was a, a lot smaller. Um, and as I mentioned to you, I think before we jumped on here, like all the new players now are in Lakeland, they're walking around, they're, they're, um, starting to get into the workouts. Last year after the draft, we, we just had a series of Zooms and we had everyone on Zoom and I was trying to introduce myself and let them know what I do. And it was very, (laughs) it was very challenging to say like, Hey, you know, we have this cage and we've got all this technology and we can assess your swing or, you know, your delivery and they're like, oh, okay, it's, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit more more challenging, obviously, when there is no baseball. So looking forward to actually having them in Lakeland this year and actually being able to collect some of this data and, and work with them. Um, but obviously everything last year was just remote as best we could do it.
2: One of the people that is currently down in Lakeland is Jackson Jobe, who was taken number three overall by the Tigers in this year's draft. We just had him on earlier in this podcast, and I'm guessing the scouting reports that you create for a player like Jackson look a lot different than most of the ones that we see, and he clearly checked a lot of boxes for you. What can you tell us about Jackson that perhaps other people don't?
4: He's an exciting young pitcher, and... He does. He takes a lot of boxes for the this the scouts, and I think for me, like the fact that he's um, so young and he he does have some good pitches. The the development upside, I think, it is probably the the most exciting thing for him. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to him um, starting to take place in some of our workouts here, and we can start to get some of that. Um, some of the more detailed data and analytics on him so that we can can work on a really good plan for
2: him. One of the things that he told us, which in some ways was kind of eye-opening, was that he didn't realize how much talent he had as a pitcher while in high school. He was a shortstop and he always knew he was a good pitcher and he would come in and be the closer for his high school team, but he wasn't, I mean, if you're a high school closer, you're probably not thinking about being a number three overall pick in the MLB draft. And he said that once the advanced numbers, the analytics started coming in on what he was able to do from the mound is when he started realizing that something was going on that was a little unique compared to many other young high school players. So from your perspective, I would expect that his buying in to numbers like that, especially at such an early age, really help him down the road.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that, you know, we try and get to straight away with the players when they get here is is really orientate them to our system and the way that we do things. And I think his experience with analytics and and seeing that growth in his pitching in in the last little while is really going to help him jump on board with our system and and how we do things and I mean I anticipate no issues trying to um you know, work with him using numbers, using some of the, the performance metrics we have to really help him him develop. And I mean, that's a pretty awesome story that he was able to tell you guys that like he's definitely, he's, he's changed a lot in the past year.
2: Now, when it comes to what you've already done, because you work with every level of the minor leagues up to the major league level, do you have favorite examples of a player or two that have been able to take your advice and run with it? Because data is data, but I'm sure you have to be convincing in order to sell it sometimes.
4: Very true. Um, so I think I won't say I necessarily have a favorite player, but there's definitely some very noticeable differences in, in players when they come in, depending on where they've come from. So we have players, for example, drafted out of big schools, and they're used to some of this, and it's part of their, you know, their daily routine. So if they've come from a big school, you know, they might have a blast sensor that they use for their their swing, and they know those metrics. If they've come out of a high school, maybe they don't have that available to them, and so for me, I think as we as this area I think becomes bigger and bigger and progresses further we're seeing more of the players come in with experience with the technology and so I love it when they come to me and they're like hey I had this at school do we have this I really know that like this number is key for me can you help me track it Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's fantastic and we do have a lot of players that are, are very much into the technology and I guess, the feedback that the technology can provide. And so it's really great for those players to be able to be working with their coach and say, all right, I want to work on my my loading of my back leg when I'm swinging, you know, and they can come into the cage, they can work on that. You know, I can set up the force plates or whatever we might be using. They can look at it and say, okay, this drill works for me, this drill doesn't work for me. Um And they can really individualize and customize, you know, their plans based on some of the work that we can do in there.
2: Does how a player is playing at any given point in time, perhaps when a guy is really struggling or when a guy is doing really well, I mean, when they get involved with you and they say, hey, can you help me work on loading my back leg? I mean, what types of dispositions do you find among players who search out this advice from you
4: typically they're the players that have a thirst for like learning and getting better and i think for me it's really exciting when they come in and they're just full of questions you know so they're there and they i think i do this you know can you confirm for me okay yeah all right now what do i do and they. It's kind of like a problem-solving, trial and error type of mentality, I guess, so that they're willing to experiment, I think is probably the right term. And to your point earlier, I think sometimes people come when they're struggling, but sometimes people actually come when they're doing really well. So we've had a few players come in that say, hey, I'm feeling amazing right now. Like my swing is great. I'm seeing the ball really well. Can we get some some baseline numbers on this right now because – you know, if in the future I'm not performing so well or maybe I get injured and I'm working my way back to here, now I have a, a baseline of where I want to get back to. So I think some of those guys that do that are the really kind of switched on players that, you know, are really looking to achieve
2: at the highest level. We're talking to Dr. Georgia Giblin, the Director of Performance Science for the Detroit Tigers. How often, when you get involved with a particular player, Because I think every player has an idea of who they are or what they are. How often do you change that reality for them based on numbers?
4: (laughs) That's a fascinating question. I think I'm probably not the person that tries to change them per se. But what happens sometimes is, you're right, someone has this idea about them as a pitcher or a hitter and and the numbers don't necessarily back that up. And so typically what I'll try and do is give that information to the coach and let the coach kind of handle um, that discussion because it is people get in their minds like, okay, this is, this is what's the best thing for me and, and sometimes that's not and it can be really hard to change people's minds and typically when you're going through change, you're not always going to succeed straight away. And so once you have some struggles, then people go, all right, I'm going to default to, you know, what I was doing beforehand. So I think for me it's more about, you know, collecting that evidence to say, all right, I, th- I think if you do this, you're going to be a better player. And then working with the coach to, you know, put a plan in place and actually help them achieve that. It can be challenging, that's for sure.
2: I heard you talk, as I was doing research for this conversation, I heard you talk in another podcast about a few things, one of which was trying to send messages to players versus coaches. How do those messages change? Because obviously, you have a a network of people who can pass your messages down to those players.
4: Yeah, so I think for the coaches, I would typically give them more information. And again, it's going to depend too on the coach, right? So, we have some very analytically-minded coaches that probably will eat up anything that you give them, right? And then obviously we have some coaches that are more, all right, I just want the three key things for me, all right? Because if you start to break down the pitching mechanics, you could go all day, right? There's a 100 million different variables that you might want to look into. So for me, with the coaches, I like to get their viewpoint on what they see as things that they're working on with the pitcher. And then I like to go and try and use the data to back that up, right? So that, you know, we have this dialogue back and forth and I'm not just presenting a hundred different metrics and, you know, asking them to go through it. But I will give the coaches probably a little bit more information than, than the players. And then typically once I've spoken with the coaches through that conversation, we'll come down to a couple of things that we think are really key for for the players. And then it might be just a, all right, hey, Dan, we noticed this. Next time you're out on the mound, we really want you to try doing this. You know? And it might be just as simple as that. They don't necessarily need to know, all right, well, your rate of force development was this or your bat speed was this. You might not need to know that. But then in some cases, some players love that. You know? They'll come and say, well, what was my rotational acceleration from my blast? You know? it just You need to understand the players, I think, that you work
2: with and
4: understand their preferences for some of the information.
2: Well, one thing's for sure. It has to make your job a lot easier when you get young players, especially some of the high school kids who are buying into this the second that they step foot down in Lakeland. So we can't thank you enough for doing this. It means a lot to us and just helping us understand these guys on a level that we don't really get to talk about a lot. So Dr. Georgia Giblin, thank you very much for joining us here on the road to Detroit. No problems. My pleasure. Our thanks to Dr. Georgia Giblin, the Director of Performance Science for the Detroit Tigers. She does a marvelous job. It's now time for the road ahead. A Lakeland welcomes Jupiter for a six-game series, while the Whitecaps of West Michigan, they're off to Midland. They'll take on the Great Lakes Loons. That's the L.A. Dodgers' high-class A affiliate. As for Erie, they're back home. They take on the Akron Rubber Ducks, while the Toledo Mudhens host the Omaha Storm Chasers. That's what's on tap this week for those Tigers' full-season affiliates. And that's going to do it for this edition of The Road to Detroit. My thanks to Jackson Job, the number three overall pick, who's already a top 100 prospect in Major League Baseball. Came in at 96 when Baseball America came out with their new rankings. And our thanks to Dr. Georgia Giblin, the Tigers' director of performance science. We're back with an all-new episode next week here on The Road to Detroit podcast. For our producer, Nate Wangler, my name is Dan Hasty. Until next time. See ya!
0: No one's been part of more first days of work than Carhartt. And in the same way rookies have to keep earning respect, Carhartt never stops earning the respect of hard-working people like you. From building rugged gear that's tougher than any first day or worst day of work, to re-engineering the classics to outwork the future. Trust your Carhartts to keep doing their job, long after you've been doing yours. Since 1889, Carhartt's got your back 24-7. Visit carhartt.com or visit a retail store near you.